0: Welcome to The Vaccination Station. My name is Dave and today I'm speaking with Melody. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Dave. It's nice to talk to you.
0: Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting?
1: well i'm a mezzo-soprano i trained classically actually my main instrument was piano I actually met my husband in choir in college a million years ago i've traveled to about 50 countries absolutely love to travel and i've been to australia several times tasmania is absolutely beautiful i think it's my okay yeah because on the mainland basically everything can kill you um <laughs> and as a, a graduate student um, part of my work was um, fire ecology so uh, I started a lot of fires on the prairie and um, I, there is a part of me that really enjoyed that
0: <laughs> well that's that's really terrific and there's um, some great connections I can make there too because I, I lived for in tasmania for about 13 years it is a beautiful beautiful place it has unparalleled rainforest I mean the the only other rainforest you're going to get that comes close is probably new south wales maybe some of the places up in queensland but that's more tropical so it's a different type of rainforest yeah just about everything on the mainland will kill you (laughs) tasmania's got some lethal stuff too but there's fewer of them so it's it's not so much of a a problem and uh yeah um i have i haven't been professionally trained but um i sing tenor and bass band and i have a um my wife's cousin; she is professionally trained and she's in a choir. She she sings in a choir in England, so I think she might also be a mezzo soprano. Actually, yeah, I've never heard her do can. I'm pretty sure she's a mezzo soprano. So that's really great. That's fantastic.
1: My husband's actually a choral
0: conductor, and that's the reason that we travel ah, a lot. Right, he gets that's to fantastic. Go. Yeah, it's and wonderful. Fifty countries, which must put you in the top 0.5 percent of Americans who have actually seen the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> how on earth and why
1: uh well i will literally go anywhere um we sometimes travel for months at a time three four sometimes seven months we went on sabbatical one time um and i there's just so much freedom living out of a suitcase um yeah i will just have a great time traveling so my first time abroad was um when i was in college i was a, a senior and my husband and I, he was, we were date, uh, started dating at the time, went to uh, Lithuania and Sweden, and that was the first time I had ever been outside of the United States. And I'm like an Iowa small town Iowa girl, and I, my, how much I learned uh, about myself, like. I think that's one of the big things I love about traveling is how much I get to question my own assumptions about the world, um, about how things work. Um, I get to see how different cultures and different peoples do things. And, um, it's such a, like a sensory experience. I, 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 um, am so stimulated by traveling.
0: I, I totally agree with that. And yes, travel does change you and, and experiencing a place is absolutely nothing like reading about it or seeing a documentary about it it does broaden your mind and, and it matures you quite a lot especially when you're young and you, I mean I was in my early 30s when I, I went to the UK I did an awful lot of growing up I mean I realized how much more growing up I needed to do which quite surprised me and since then I've uh, been to the US a couple of times I've been to Texas Illinois Wisconsin uh, all of which I I thoroughly enjoyed I was in a ranch in Deep South Texas, um, Illinois, I was in very different circumstances, very nice, comfortable, swanky suburbs. And then uh, Wisconsin, I was at a, um, a Christian Bible school where I was one of the keynote speakers. And yeah, I just, I just loved it. And so, so different. The three states, so radically different and so interesting. I'm also building up a collection of the U.S. airports that I particularly despise. And at the top of that list is Los Angeles. Um,
1: oh. LAX
0: is the most abominable airport. I thought I didn't like Dallas-Fort Worth. Dallas-Fort Worth, I have, have actually grown to tolerate. LAX is a curse on humanity. It, it, it is just like not, nothing on earth. No, there's something very wrong with that airport. Airports See, are Aren't particularly amazing places to begin with but Lack seems to have been designed to just to hurt you <laughs> that's all I can say <laughs> it's just a, the most horrendous place can you tell me where you studied and what your qualifications are and also which field you've chosen to specialize in
1: uh, I did my um, undergraduate and my master's at uh, University of Nebraska at Omaha. Um, my bachelor's was biology and I minored in chemistry. Uh, I actually thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. Uh, I went to vet school um, and very quickly decided that is not what I wanted to be when I would grew up. So I went to uh, graduate school instead and I uh, studied prairie ecology um, and I um, I got my master's degree. Um, Basically, I I specialized in um, succession on the Great Plains. Um, That's where the fires came in. And um, then I uh, also got a secondary science teaching certificate and taught high school science for a bit. And um, then my husband got a job across the country in Massachusetts. So um, I followed him and uh, got a job uh, teaching uh, at a community college. I absolutely adore teaching at a community college because I get to spend the vast majority of my time teaching um so i started a sustainable landscaping program i basically applied the principles of ecology to landscaping um and there's a really robust um, undergraduate research program now uh, with native pollinators around the the sustainable landscaping program which is just absolutely wonderful Um, and since then i've specialized in basically uh, general science education and critical thinking education
0: that's really fantastic. On the, the subject of fires, I can relate to that because, of course, bushfires are uh, pretty much a seasonal thing here in Australia. And whereas you guys have prairies, and I can imagine just how fast a fire rips through a prairie, we, of course, have huge amounts of bushland, most of which is eucalyptus. So all of our forests are potential bombs because the eucalyptus trees pretty much explode when the fire hits the oil. And as a result of that, the fire can leap ridiculous distances in a very short time. So once the fire has started crowning, it just jumps from treetop to treetop, can completely ignore whatever is on the ground. Uh, and that's, of course, how it's able to, to cross um, smaller obstacles or, or even small rivers and creeks and that kind of thing. And in the last, I wanna say 30, 40 years, there's been a lot more emphasis on sustainable fire management, partly by learning from indigenous techniques and also by learning new ways of agriculture, which incorporate the existing native foliage rather than simply pushing it out of the way in, in favor of say, pure farmland or you know some arable land for for ridiculous crops we shouldn't even be growing in australia like cotton and rice for example because they're Uh so water heavy yeah fire management is a big priority over here so how did you first become interested in science as a career and what advice would you give to anyone who's considering a career in science
1: uh yeah you know i actually um I'm a first generation college uh, graduate. And so, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of advising, I think, into how the process would go. I went into, uh, biology and chemistry as a major because, you know, I thought I wanted to go into maybe medicine or veterinary medicine, um, because I was looking for a career and that would, you know, be able to, um, make myself some money and so on. And those seemed viable. And as part of an undergrad biology uh, degree at my university, our junior year, we have to take ecology. And I remember sitting in that class thinking, holy cow, does that make sense? Like, um, It was the first time that, um, a course helped me make connections between things that I hadn't seen before. Um, it was all very meta, I suppose, but it was my brain loved the ecological thinking. I continued on obviously to, to go to that school, but my, my heart, obviously my brain was with ecology. Um, so that is where my initial love was and obviously being out in the field and, um, you know, out in prairies and, you know, starting fires, all of that was just ridiculously fun. And part of me really misses that. Um, Advice to those considering a career in science. Um, You know, I I advise students, but I work at a community college and nearly all of my students are first-generation college students. And so they don't have the kind of advising that I think um, um, a lot of uh, professional scientists had gotten. Um, And I'm stereotyping and and I could be wrong on that, but, A lot of them are going into science because they want a career. And um, what I try to tell them is find an area that excites you. And then um, when um, you you get to that area, look into the researchers who are active in that area, um, explore their work, contact them. I mean, we live in an era with Twitter where basically everyone is contactable. You know, reach out to them, make connections because it's really about who you know, not just what you know, but who you know. Um, get as much experience as possible. So if you're not sure. Whatever you want to go into, try different labs, um, try different um, uh, research projects, Um, undergraduate research. If you can get into an undergraduate research program, um, absolutely do that. Um, But yeah, basically just exploring, get involved as early as possible.
0: Thank you. That's really terrific.
1: So how did you get
0: into science communication, which seems to be your your, uh, main focus at the moment?
1: Yeah, that actually came from um, my students. So again, my students are um, community college students. Um, I teach in an, uh, an urban area. The vast majority of my students are, um, as I said, first generation. I have a lot of students who are immigrants. Um, who um, you know, a, about half of my students are students of color. They are what I imagine normal Americans to be, right? Like the average American are those students sitting in my class. And um, I've had 15, 16 years of trying to design a science education um, that interests them. Like I have learned what they know, um, what they don't know, Um, What interests them? How to tailor a message so that they hear it? How to get their attention? I basically have been testing these ideas with my students over the years. And so the um, jump into science communication was basically my students have taught me how um, to communicate to this audience. And so I just applied it online.
0: That's really interesting. It's, my wife is a, a high school teacher or was a high school teacher. She now works directly for the State Department of Education in their curriculum unit. So she helps to discuss uh, and draft new new curriculum for, for all the schools in, in our state. And she's had uh, experience with more comfortable schools and marginal schools and She The last school she taught at was an indigenous school as well, so she ended up picking up a bit of the local um, indigenous language, which is the Ghana language, and she could definitely relate to to everything that that you've said there. So you're active on social media and you use social media to get your message about the science across, but how has social media affected the way you communicate your, your knowledge and ideas?
1: Well, uh, so my first step into science communication was my website. So um, I was taking the content that I was teaching in my classes and um, writing it and putting onto um, my website, Thinking is Power. And um, then I realized I wanted eyes on my website. (laughs) So in order to do that, I went to social media. Um, and I will fully admit to be, um, being overwhelmed by social media. Um, there are so many channels and, um, so many different ways to use those channels. So I, I picked a couple, um, I picked, a, I chose Facebook and uh, Twitter to start with. And, um, what I wanted to do was, you know, people are scrolling through their feeds. I first need them to stop and look. Right. And so to stop and look, um, I decided to, um, with my concepts, create shareable graphics. So colorful, um, simple, hopefully clear and concise language that um, is um, not just engaging, but not condescending, not, and I'm trying to think of a way to say this, that Scientists tend to talk at a, a level that the average person doesn't understand. And that's a difficult thing to translate. So what I wanted to do was use language that the average person would understand. And I affectionately call um, my audience the normals. So I'm air quoting normals. So um, the middle of the bell curve, right? The, the far end of the bell curve on the one side doesn't need me. They've already know these things. Um, the other side, I, I mean, I, I'm just never going to reach. Um, it's those in the middle, the normals that I can. And so um, how do I target them? Um, and it's, I, I think I've had a lot of success with the shareable graphics, people like quotes. Like I do a lot of fallacy graphics. So I'll, I'll take a logical fallacy and um, make it colorful and um, give an example with um, some um, uh, like people talking back and forth to show what that uh, fallacy might look like in practice.
0: That certainly correlates to my own experience as someone who's not a scientist, doesn't have a, a science background, but has still found it uh, necessary to think carefully about the way I communicate, my own infographics, and even some of my my regular posts on my Facebook page. Since I don't have a science background, I have to translate what I read into something that I can understand. And then I sort of, you know... Um, simplify a little bit further for a, a broader audience that might not be familiar with all, all of these concepts. So if, if there's one thing I, I learned at university was how to distill ideas into uh, a concise um, and easily understood way. Because I, I did debating, I was on the, the debating team, and when you only have a certain amount of time and you have no idea what your audience is, is what your audience's background is gonna be. You have to learn very quickly how to communicate thoughts and and ideas and concepts in ways that are practically universal for want of a better term. So I applied that ability to to my infographics. um, And so I can only imagine the struggle that someone who does have the science background, who constantly thinks in the language of science has to take a, a pause gear down gear down gear down all the way to first gear and say okay let's put it into first gear language thankfully i don't have to do that i'm, I'm already closer to first gear myself uh, but, well that's yeah. where my
1: students have really helped me they have taught me all of that over the years and also like um i present things in a way that i would want to receive them Um, and so like, there's a quote and I will not be able to attribute the quote to the, the, the correct author. And I apologize for that, but it's, it was like, um, I write the book that I would want to read. Right. So I write the article in a way that I would want to read. I create the graphic in a way that I would want the message so that I could understand it. And hopefully it resonates with other people.
0: Now, on this podcast, I have frequently raised the issue of critical thinking, and I believe it's important for young people to learn critical thinking skills so that they can build a worldview that's resistant to pseudoscience and logical fallacies. And as I see it, critical thinking is the nexus of ontology, epistemology, and philosophy, And even a basic introduction to these disciplines is enough to help people interpret information in a more rational and structured way, which has real world implications for public health and other important aspects of life. Now that's my perspective as someone with a background in philosophy. How would you describe your perspective as someone with a background in science?
1: Yeah, so um, as um, a science educator who's been teaching science for a very long time, what, what the general consensus amongst science educators is, is that we teach science, therefore we're teaching critical thinking. And actually, like at, at my college, um, all of the science classes are by definition listed as critical thinking classes. And it is true that you have to be able to think critically to understand science, but you can teach science without really teaching critical thinking. And that's where I feel like um, I really tried. um, I was really trying to teach science and I assumed I was teaching critical thinking. And it took me a long time to realize that I wasn't. And so, um, uh, you know, critical thinking, there, there's so many definitions of it, but in, in, in my mind, it's basically being able to draw reasonable conclusions from the available evidence. And so that requires epistemology, and it requires metacognition, it requires skepticism and curiosity and intellectual humility. I mean, there's so many aspects of critical thinking. When I um, designed, so I I was teaching non-majors biology. The, so the when um, most people who get a four-year so, uh, uh, a degree in the United States, um, at least this um, liberal arts degree, they have to take um, science classes. And most of the time they take a biology class. So like intro to bio um, or baby bio, I'm air quoting again, which you can't see on audio, but um, you know, baby bio is basically like a survey of all the concepts of biology in a semester. You know, you start with um, scientific method with, you know, observation and question and experiment. And then at the end you did a science and then, Then you don't talk about it again because you're busy talking about like cells and how cells make proteins and genetic, you know, uh, how cells reproduce. And all of those things are interesting. I'm not saying they're not, but is that really critical thinking? (laughs) So um, I then decided that I wanted to do something different. And with this idea in mind that critical thinking is empowering it is, um, uh, there's this great quote from uh, the, the Schick and Vaughn uh, book, um, How to Think About Weird Things, which is a wonderful critical thinking book, but um, it's something like, uh, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your decisions, and the quality of your decisions is determined by the quality of your thinking. And so, can I teach my students to think better so that they can make better decisions, so that they're not fooled by BS? right, so that they can be empowered and not fall for, you know, Carl Sagan would call it baloney.
0: (laughs) So on your your website, uh, thinking is power, I see that you've created a science education course. And you've mentioned just now that you've been uh, teaching a uh, critical thinking. And this course is called science for life. So why did you create it? If you can build on your previous answer and what can you tell me about the principles on which it's based?
1: Yeah. So there's actually an an updated version of that um, uh, on the Skeptical Inquirer website and it's, it's free. It's called teach skills, not facts. Um, It was really born out of my frustration with baby bio. And I taught that course for, I, I lose track of time. 13 years, something like that. And I probably used a half a dozen books. I will use no book. I used issues. I, you know, um, I I remember not just teaching mitosis, but cancer because cancer is a um, deficiency of it's an issue with cell uh, reproduction. Um, but it still just didn't seem right. Like students were memorizing a bunch of facts that they had to regurgitate and then they were forgetting it. And quite frankly, most of the students who don't want to be scientists when they grow up are not taking a science class because they're interested in science. They're taking it because they have to, and they are kind of science phobic. And I feel like, um, I was trying to instill how great science was and how like science is everywhere. Like if you don't understand science, then like the world around you doesn't make sense. But it just, to me, it wasn't working in my experience. So I created the core science for life. I literally blew the whole thing up and I started from scratch. And what I, um, I, I used a backwards design approach and um, my end goals were what I called skills. And the three primary skills were critical thinking science literacy and information literacy. So, we've already defined critical thinking. Um, Science literacy, um, a lot of places define that as being able to regurgitate facts. Like um, when you'll see polls about how literate, uh, science literate Americans are, it's, you know, um, um, how long does it take the Earth to go around the sun? Or which is smaller, an electron or a molecule, right? And again, those are important factoids, but they're not in my estimation science literacy because you could know those things without understanding the process of science. And then information literacy, because of course, students carry in their pockets, phones that have access to basically all of humanity's knowledge. The question is, can they use it? So I designed a course around those end goals. Um, and the the um, course then um, starts with, basic epistemology. Um, and we can go to any of this if you like to. It goes into uh, basic epistemology. I actually start with um, witchcraft. It goes into then skepticism. I give them a toolkit for evaluating claims. Um, and then the limits of our perception and memory. So basically, we do not experience the world as it objectively is. So how can we, um, um, we need to understand that our experiences are subjective to be able to um, understand why the process of science is important, um, then biases and heuristics and logical fallacies and information literacy. So I don't get to science until after the midterm. And, I, you know, I, I <laughs> the course has gone through several iterations and um, the first time I, Um, I ran the course that way. I thought, oh my God, I'm out of my mind. I'm not, I don't cover science until after the midterm. And this is a science class, but I have realized since then that if I don't cover how easily we fool ourselves, then why is science so important? There's no justification for science if you don't understand how your thinking can lead you astray. All of the errors that you can make. So then after the midterm, we get into science. Um, um, We then go into health uh, pseudoscience. Uh, I say pseudoscience because I do cover pseudoscience. So health, nutrition, um, environment. I actually use pseudoscience. So Carl Sagan has this wonderful quote um, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm not gonna exactly right. But if we teach only the findings of science without the method, how is anyone to be able to distinguish between science and pseudoscience? So I took him literally. And I use pseudoscience in class, so I cover astrology and homeopathy, and um, it, we do science denial too. So the MMR vaccine and uh, autism, or um, you know, herbal life, ghosts, I don't know, for a psychics. You know, so um, I students believe these things, and so without addressing them, um, you know, they could leave not understanding how that belief system is different than a more reliable one. Um, of gaining knowledge like science. I also use inoculation theory. So I expose students to misinformation to help inoculate them against real, uh, against misinformation in the real world. Um, so um, the, the basic idea is that I want students to leave the class with the tools to be able to make better decisions for their lives
0: thank you that's a a really comprehensive overview of uh, of your course and what it aims to do and i really like the, the the way that you've structured it i appreciate immediately the reasons why you decided to work backwards when planning it because yeah it's one of those things where you have to look at the end goal first and sometimes that's what you've got to do in a in a when you're writing an essay for example you've got to look at where you're heading first. And sometimes you end up writing a conclusion before your introduction, because you're not sure what your introduction is going to look like until you've at least got the rest of it fleshed out. Uh, And yes, reverse engineering, if you like, is a good way to do it. Because you can say, if this is where I want to go, I need to start with that. So I have a clear goal, then I can work out how I'm going to get there. But if I don't work out precisely where I'm going, then I could get Distracted along the way, and this could all quite get quite messy and and uh, tangential. So I, I really like the way you've you've put that, especially when you're thinking about a particular audience in in mind. You've, you're thinking about, say, uh, a audience with a non-science background, audience of college students first generation college students as you say you can make no assumptions about the extent of their knowledge or their prior reading you have to assume a a blank slate and start from scratch and that's where you have to say well you know how do i get from here to there without losing my audience along the way and i and i so i absolutely understand why you you chose to work backwards from there that makes perfect sense There is an ongoing discussion about whether or not the word truth should be used in the context of science. Some people say it's problematic because it implies a degree of absolute certainty that science is reluctant to indulge due to the limits of scientific knowledge. And they say we should instead use the term approximate truth so although of course to the non-scientific mind that sounds dangerously loose and and not what science should be in the mind of the average person now ethan siegel wrote an article about this for forbes in 2019 which i found very interesting that's what sparked this question what Are your views on the issue, can we use the word truth in science, provided we qualify it carefully enough, or is there another word that we should be using instead, which doesn't require qualification, but still gets the message across?
1: That's a really tough question for me, because um, I I see my role as um, a science educator and communicator. Um, I personally don't like using the word truth in science, but I, I do know there's quite a debate amongst philosophers and philosophers of science about the use of that word. My concern is that the public doesn't have a very good understanding of what science is. And scientists are debating aspects of science. and when those two things interface, it can be really messy so for example um you know i spend a lot of time on social media these days and um you know the same misconceptions pop up over and over again things like well when science has proven this to be true then i'll accept it well science is about facts and truth and so on and it's um this idea oh and there's a a, the scientific method did they follow the scientific method all of these misunderstandings about what science is it's some sort of like there's a misconception that science is a body of facts that we know for certain and what that says to me as a science educator and communicator is that they don't understand what science is so what i try and do is communicate instead actually no science isn't a noun it's a verb right it's a process um it's also um there's not one scientific method that recipe-like formula that appears at the beginning of every science textbook is not very accurate. Like a lot of science doesn't follow those steps. And, you know, as an ecologist, I can absolutely say that um, we don't use a lot of controlled experiments. And so, you know, there's no control earth by which to test something like climate change. So um, instead, I'm um, getting um, the message more across that um, even scientific knowledge itself is provisional, it's always tentative. There are degrees of certainty. We don't get to absolute certainty. Um, so maybe modify how confident we are about this. And also about the importance of consensus. So um, I think when the average person hears the word consensus, they hear, you know, like it's a democracy and it's a bunch of people just voting. And of course, they're all in the same team because of uh, some sort of conspiratorial reason. Um, But that's not how consensus works at all in science. And consensus is essential to science. And um, I love uh, Naomi Oreska's definition of science um, in that, um, you know, science is... um, basically over time the um consilience of evidence the um conversions of evidence um and the um agreement of different scientists based on that evidence on what is considered to be true and there's that word again and i you know i know it's loaded but consensus is science And so, um, like when I talk to my students and I want them to be able to find good information, I teach them the importance of expert consensus. That is the process of science, is experts reaching consensus. Okay, so if you want the best possible knowledge available to us, how do you find that consensus? If there's not a consensus, then we should be less sure of what we think we know. But even things that we think we know really for sure, I mean, there's always some wiggle room, but it's unlikely to change in a lot of cases, right? But knowledge isn't black or white. It's a bunch of shades of gray in the middle. So back to, um, I think that those debates that go on within the scientific um, um, circles um, I think they do the public a disservice when they creep into the public, because they don't have the background needed to understand what that debate is even about.
0: Yeah, that's uh, a very measured response. And I, I like the way that you explore the different tendrils of that question, because it is a lot to unpack. And, and we could spend an entire podcast on, on that Look, thank you very much for your time, Melanie. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I've learned a great deal as I always do when I'm speaking to scientists and, and other experts. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you online?
1: So my writing, I post on com, and my social media channels are Facebook at Thinking Powers and Twitter at Thinking Powers.
0: That's really great. Thank you so much. I'll see you around on Facebook sometime.
1: Awesome. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.